0: This is Wrestling Memories Online. I'm your host, Glenn Broggett. On a previous Wrestling Memories Online, I happen to have as my guest, former professional wrestler Billy Jack Haynes. Now, he came on the program to not only revisit some of his pro wrestling career, he also came on to discuss the recent federal lawsuit that he had filed against the World Wrestling Entertainment Corporation, alleging... That uh, during his time in the WWE, the company failed to both protect and educate him and some of the other wrestlers in their company. Now, these were accusations made by Billy Jack, and this is going to be going to court here. In fact, uh, I heard some news that they were going to move it from Portland uh, to Connecticut. So things are starting to heat up a little bit. Our guest today is with us to respond to some of the things that were discussed by Billy Jack Haynes and offer, in his own words, a proper rebuttal or his perspective on the business. He's a previous Wrestling Memories guest. In fact, he was on our most listened to Wrestling Memories episode, so he's got a big feather in his cap already. He worked in the pro wrestling business, and he worked not only for Vince McMahon, but also for Vern Gagne, Bill Watts, and countless others on the indie circuit. And uh, yes, a lot of our listeners may remember him up in the Midwest and uh, in some of the WWF shows as an enhancement talent. He documented his career in a book he put together in 2014 titled Job Man, My 25 Years in Pro Wrestling. He's wrestled bears, governors, giants, and wrestling barbers and even has the haircut to prove it back in the day. And that just merely scratches the surface on what he done in his pro wrestling career. And it is an honor to welcome him back. To Wrestling uh, Memories. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chris Curtis. We're going to give you a wrestling name, Mr. Chris Curtis. Welcome back to the world of Wrestling Memories, sir.
1: Thank you so much, Glenn, for having me. And it's, uh, it's an honor, too, to be back on your show.
0: Yes. And like I mentioned before, uh, boy, the, the response is uh, definitely good for your Wrestling uh, Memories episode. You are still the highest ranked interview. What's that like? You, you have uh, outduced Nick Bachwinkle, Dick the Destroyer buyer. Billy Robinson, your old chum, for lack of a better term. But you have you that, have that's
1: incredible because um, I guess I put myself over. How about that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, feather in the cap. Uh, I mean, a lot of people wanted to hear about your career. A lot of people are fat. We're fascinated, and now. You come here not only to discuss some of the past because we're going to get into that. We'll get into that in the time we do have today. But the main thing you wanted to do is come on and make a comment because shortly after I posted up our the Billy Jack Haynes interview, you were so kind and gracious to uh, to comment on it and uh, you know to, to step up and to offer your perspective on what's what's going on your point of view and to what you th- your thoughts on uh, Billy Jack with his claims uh, he made to the World Wrestling Entertainment. And I'm going to let you have the floor. And I do want to thank you too. For commenting uh, on it and getting back in touch, but I want to have you to take the floor about Billy Jack Haynes and this issue uh, that he's put up in federal court. What do you think about it all? First of all, when you when you heard about the, heard this uh, interview with Billy Jack and you heard about this case prior,
1: well, when when I saw it, I um, right right off the bat, I knew this is. I really believe he's going to lose, mm-hmm. along with. The 50, other, uh, the 50 other wrestlers, I believe, he said he's, he's got part of this, uh, this lawsuit. Number one, whether you're a fan watching professional wrestling or you're somebody like myself that was getting into the business, you automatically know the risks that are involved. Mm-hmm. You know there's a potential for concussions. You know there's a potential for torn muscles. For broken bones, when you do blade jobs over a period of time, um, there's a great possibility of getting hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe Abdullah the butcher ended up with that. So you know there's a, there's potential hazards in a business like this. It's a work, yes, it's a work, but yet all the bumps, all the falls. Everything you see there, it's not an optical illusion. It's a real thing. I know. I've been injured many times. Um, concussions from Bob Sweetan and Larry uh, Zabisco from a pile driver. Um, I took a bump over the top rope and landed wrong. I let my my lower part of my back caught uh, the corner of the ring. I was passing blood for two days. This was working down south. I think I was wrestling Bull Ramos. And um, he was actually my roommate at the time, <laughs> and uh, I took a bump wrong. I could barely get up in the morning. I had to, like, roll out of bed onto the floor and then work my way back up. I could barely walk. But I had to work that night because you don't get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for Billy Jack, and, you know, given listening to his interview, I do give him credit. Everything he said, pretty much, you know, about the business, what he did, um, you know, I, I have no problem with that. I really Jack in a six-man tag back in Louisville, Kentucky, back in 87. Mm-hmm. He was a nice guy. Um, you know, no problems there. But for him to insinuate that, you know, why wasn't, the WWE, the WWF, uh, why didn't they forewarn the wrestlers the potential hazards of using steroids, taking drugs, um, so on and so forth? You know, he said, Glenn, that, yeah, people said he could have walked away, um, and he could have, mm-hmm. but he said the money was too good. Yeah, the money was great, and, but you stuck around for it, but now you're biting the hand that fed you. And so I think that's the hypocrisy that um, that's going behind this lawsuit that these guys are filing.
0: Mm-hmm. And another thing I've noticed, too, you know, listening to Billy and then doing some, some research, too, and, and from what I got from Billy, I mean, a lot of, like you mentioned before, a lot of things that he was making sense on, but, you know, coming at it, too, with some sort of, I mean, this is kind of the thing that kind of turned me off a little bit or just got me questioning it was, the uh, this all of a sudden this naivete because it wasn't like Billy just came off the street this muscle bound guy and went right to work for McMahon I mean these were years that he worked the territory circuit first cutting his teeth and uh, gaining a huge following up in his home area of Portland of course leading to runs uh you know down in Florida for you know towards the end of Eddie Graham's run down there he worked for for Crockett he had a cup of coffee in World Class but I mean. Just to say, I mean, to blame the WWE as a whole is that just? I thought that that's like, hey, this is the biggest game in town. All the other territories fell by the wayside, but I don't know. The naivete thing got me kind of a little leery on his part.
1: Yeah, and and if you know, I don't know what the uh, you know the factor is um, why these guys are doing it. Um, I don't know if they're broke. Mm-hmm. They need the money. Um. You know, I think um, I think uh, Billy Jack was stating that you know when he was when he was with you know Vince for uh, I think it was the mid eighties.
2: Yeah, for a couple, of, couple of years. Yeah, or,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, he's making eight or nine grand a week, and that that's a lot of money. And um, you know, I if 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 they're paying all the trans and they're paying the hotels and all you have to pay for is your food. And, you know, entertainment and stuff, they had it pretty good. Um, I know, here's the thing, let me, Let me. Uh, you know, and I know he was talking about, you know, he was on steroids and he was on, you know, 30 Vicodin a day or whatever the heck he was taking. Um, <laughs> back, I'm going to go back to like, I think it was 82. Okay. When Ole Anderson unleashed the two-headed monster in the Road Warriors. <laughs> Talk, talk and, about a lot
0: of broken, busted bones from uh, the preliminaries on up. Those guys came in, man. That was a force of nature in and of itself.
1: Right. And, you know, and that's when the steroid thing really started. When I, was, when I first was watching these guys, you know, I'm going to tell you something right now. I have, I have absolutely no respect for Ole Anderson, the way he unleashed those two on helpless jobbers. You took your life. In your own hands, wrestling these guys because they were just told to go out and beat the living hell out of who was ever in the ring. Um, you know, they were still kind of green, and you know their finishes and stuff like that were just were were crazy. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, and then it all started. The guys were starting to get bigger. Guys, you know, guys that you never would see were big. They're all big, mm-hmm. and the steroids were 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 uh were rampant
0: it was yeah it was a bit of, it was a bit of the wild west because uh, the government hadn't fully cracked down on them until you got into the latter part of the 80s and into the 90s so this was like the Diana balls and the stuff like that 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 was still pretty much uh, per regular in, in, in weight rooms across the country and of course weight rooms and professional wrestlers in most cases went hand in hand and then when it was a keeping up with the Joneses basically to keep that body in that nice condition for the cameras when it became more of yeah. a television industry that's when it went down.
1: Yeah, and then and then you know finally, after it was all said and done, after uh, there was a crackdown on steroids, you know, and the uh, the thing back with uh, the doctor for the WWF, I believe
0: Zorian. supposed,
1: yeah, he was supplying them with everything, and then there was the, you know, the the, the government got involved with it, and so you know it it cut back, and but <laughs> that's what they say, mm-hmm. you know. You don't go from uh, 220 pounds to 285 pounds and stay like that and say you're not on the juice anymore. Um, I've seen in the dressing rooms, and I'm not naming names, Mm -hmm. but I've seen guys injecting each other in the butts. I've seen gym bags as big as body bags full of, Bottles of pills. Um, I've seen needles. I'm not exaggerating it. Mm-hmm. I won't bring up any names. Well, no, because yeah, but I've seen it. I've well, been there. <laughs> well, how, pro, how so, prophetic,
0: though? These guys having these these bags, almost like body bags, full of pills. And these were, unfortunately, some of the guys that led the charge uh, when, when we were seeing so many of them fall fall as far as early premature deaths. I mean. It was it was a real cocktail for trouble. I mean, you got that, and you got things to keep you in shape. You also had things to get you to go to sleep to feel a little less sore from the night. You got things to keep you up. You were a walking pharmacy sometimes when you were on that top tier, and even some of the guys that were on the, further down the card picked up those habits as well. I guess you know, casualty of the road or whatever the excuse may be. But boy, I mean, everybody seemed to have for a good percentage. Not everybody, because that isn't fair. Everybody seemed to have mm-hmm. their own, their own habits. Well,
1: and and you know too, Glenn. Um, when you, here, here's the thing. Um, when, when I was, when I wrestled starting with Byrne in 79 and, uh, through 89, and then when I wrestled, you know, for Vince in the mid to late eighties and Bill Watts in 1980 and for Geigel in 79 and for Pat O'Connor in 79 and doing a lot of, uh, uh you know, independent stuff outlaw things. When you <laughs> I did it part time and and yes I hurt, but my body was used to it. And back then you wouldn't take I mean I took some pretty good bumps. I mean I, I really did because I wanted to, you know, as a heel, the the, the better bump you took and it, it it looked better for the baby face to to really put him over. The guys After that, when you started getting into the extreme, you know, smashing guys through tables, uh, you know, hitting them over the head with garbage cans, and it just got more violent, more violent, and more violent, Um, it just, uh, it wasn't wrestling anymore, it was more uh, war, and you're gonna, you do that kind of stuff on a night after night basis, you know, in street fight matches, and death matches, and you know, set myself on fire matches, you're going to have to take something to make yourself feel better. Now, granted, I'm sure they got paid really good, but you know what? After a while, it's like, I can only do this for so long. Otherwise, I'm going to end up, I'm going to be disabled for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why you would think that, they would have something, another career to back up what they were doing. And obviously, a lot of the guys don't. Mm-hmm. Why do you think some of these guys, like Greg the Hammer Valentine and Brutus Beefcake and the Honky Tonk Man and whomever else is out there, they're wrestling until they're in their 60s. And, and Terry Funk, I'm surprised. He's not in a nursing home by now. He's got to be one of the toughest guys alive. You know, he's, he's probably, he's got to be in his late 60s. Dory Funk Jr. is still out there. I mean, I think he was in Japan a few years ago. He's, I think he's 72 years old. That's insane. And it's just, I know you love the business, and I, and I know some guys can't leave it, but, I mean, you know, common sense has to take precedence over nonsense. Mm-hmm. And you you just you can't do it. I quit the business when I was forty six years old because number one, all the territories were gone. They were gone in eighty nine. That, that was pretty much it. Everybody was was history. And uh, the WWF at the time was taking a, a different turn for the worse that I didn't care for. So I was working the outlaw stuff after that. You know, for the next thirteen years or fourteen years, I had enough. There was nothing more to do. And, you know, it's just, you know, going back to what Billy Jack and these other guys, I, I think Jim Powers is is one of them, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, I think him and Roma both. I think Roma joined up with this, uh, this sort yeah, of Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, those guys were juiced up back then. Um, you know, uh, Animal from the Road Warriors, uh, you know, Joel Aronitis, you know, he even said, you know what? I, I see nothing wrong with using steroids. I mean, if if it makes you better, why not? Well, that's 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 crap. That's garbage. You know, you're cheating. You're not doing everything on your
0: own. And it has a, and, and it has an intended side effect too, because look at all these guys that you know. You hear about this. You read about the side effects of steroids, and you know they still go on and take them, and it leads to the you know a lot of these muscle bound guys either getting really blown up and leading to further mm-hmm. heart conditions and other stuff.
1: Well, you know. It, it's really funny, Glenn, because in Illinois, um, we were in uh, we were in Springfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. and they always had a you know a doctor assigned by the state athletic commission, and you would stand in line, and uh, you would uh, uh, you know you take your blood pressure and check your heart and everything. Well, as it turns out, now this was back in I think eighty eight. That we were doing TV that night for uh, you know I don't know, wrestling challenge or superstars or whatever, and the guy in front of me was uh, the Ultimate Warrior, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at this guy, and so the doctor, you know he's next and the and the doctor puts his his hand on his shoulder, and he kind of squeezes it a little bit, and his skin was kind of like pinkish purplish a little bit, and when he was squeezed a little bit, it's like, it was like a sponge. Mm-hmm. Sign of rights, oh. And he let go, and I'm looking at him, and it's just like, man, you got to be kidding me. And his heart blew up. What was he 54 years old was his last year or something like that yeah
0: yeah i mean we're talking barely into the mid-50s i mean that's i mean for a guy that's so bulked up juiced up in all his great shape i mean you don't go down like that unless you're taking something unless you have a congenital heart condition which is a family thing but when you look at him that that is more than a family condition if there was
1: well right and and he was doing that you know way way back then you know with when he was working i think for for i mean him and uh, Sting, they were the Blade Runners or something. You know, they were working doing that way back with Watts and. Oh
0: yeah, when they and, were working uh, with Rick Bassman too, before they ended up uh, heading to Memphis initially, then making it over to Watts, they were part of a four-man collective of bodybuilders slash wrestlers with the Power Team USA. So this was always part of the gimmick. Right,
1: and and when I was listening to Billy Jack and how you know he was he he overdosed on the plane, he was taking 30 to 40 Vicodin, um, and and he was blaming Vince, you know, he, he needed to take off, he couldn't go to the emergency room, he couldn't do this, he couldn't do that, you know, you had to make the town, and, and on and on and on. I'm thinking, you know what, David, if, if you're in such a condition, and you can't go to the emergency room, um, then you know what, I don't want to hear it because it's a bunch of crap. If, if you're in such dire shape, you think some you know uh, general physician is going to, like, in, in the dressing room, you're going to go to him and you say, yeah, it was okay. What's he going to do, prescribe a pill to you? Um,
0: <laughs> Slap you on your butt and tell you to walk out? I mean, really?
1: <laughs> exactly. Listen, the, the guys are tough. There's no doubt about it. We're were some of the toughest guys around there and, and you have to go out night after night after night. But when it comes to a point where you have to quit, then you have to quit. Mm -hmm. Nobody is putting a gun to your head to make you go out there. You can say, I've had enough. I can't do it anymore. I got a family. Yeah. I got to feed my family. But it is it, am I gonna be able to feed my family if I die in the middle of the ring or in the dressing room or a hotel room, if I overdose on, on painkillers, if and mixed with alcohol, which guys have done. Um, you got, you know, Kurt Hennig, you got Bobby Duncan Junior, you got, you know, a list of other guys that have died, but you know, and, and there's other mitigating factors, you know, other kinds of drugs that go along with it. So nobody has told these guys, you must do this. Nobody is holding a gun to their head. You better do this.
0: Well, it's, 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 it's it's the addiction I think to the the spotlight. I mean, having that spot, I mean, some of the guys can be driven to, uh, to be just overly consumed by the, the image of themselves being so big that it's a harder drug for them to let go, the fame thing more than anything else. I mean, they want that spot. I mean, their spot, having that spot, retaining that spot, sometimes, you know, like in Billy Jack's case, I mean, the guy just was... So foolish in thinking that he had to keep going and going until he dropped. And not and another thing too, it not having a fallback placement plan. I mean, you hear stories about some of the guys in the business that uh, you know, went to school were told by their parents or whoever was going to train them to get that education first. Because you know what? This business isn't gonna you're not gonna last forever. I mean, the gravity that uh gravity turns back your it's back on you pretty fast and you get older and you take all these bumps you got to realize to have you have to have an escape plan NFL players there's a lot of people and in recent years the NFL has done the counseling too to get these guys to think a little bit about how they spend their money I mean yeah you're on the road and stuff and you're 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 out having your party at the Ramada Inn every night you I mean you're not going to be dropping all this money without consequence
1: mhm and and you know too Glenn <coughs> The business way back then, as opposed, uh, compared to what, what it's like now, now it's all big bumps and it's, and it's all, it, everything is big. It's spectacular. Way back when, when you had guys like Harley Race and Jack Briscoe and Nick Bockwinkle and Vern Gagne and uh, Dory Funk Jr., you know, Dick Murdoch, um, where you could go six Johnny Valentine, where you could go 60 minutes and you can work a whole you work a couple you work some high spots and 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 if you do a 60 minute broadway you got some false finishes at the end and that's how they could go 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 and that's how they lasted 30-some years. Psychology. Uh, It was was
0: knowing when to go fast, and it was knowing when to ease down and and wrench the tension up to get that crowd into it. You talked about Johnny Valentine. Who better at the psychology? He could stare you down for 15 minutes, and he'd have the fans in the palm of their hands. It's the balance of psychology with the high spots at the right time, and knowing how to work the fundamentals, and also work the crowd too. You go out there with your own set of moves, boom, 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 you're overthinking it. you got to have at least some sort of a skeleton of all the, and the match starts and ends, but what you do in the middle, I mean, that the art of calling it in the ring it, it seems to be a lost thing as well.
1: It is. I mean, nowadays, you know, I, I'm sure they get the ring set up that morning. I mean, you know, I remember we went to a town one time, and we got there early, and the ring was set up like at noon. So, you know, with all the, you know, the big high spots and the bumps and everything that they're taking, obviously, you know, you just can't call some of these crazy stuff, these crazy, you know, high spots in the ring. I mean, when these things are like a minute long, it seems like you you can't. You got to practice the stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas opposed to back then, you could call something and, uh, um, you know, it's like, that people are like, now what's going to happen? Now, it's so crazy that if, if you're doing some leap off the top, and you're going to hit the guy over the head with a with a two-by-four, and you throw him over the top rope, and he you, you, you jumps, he falls from the ceiling, and then you beat him with a roll-up or a small package. You know, I mean, I, and I'm just being facetious, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's just what these guys are doing is you know they say they say when when Vince exposed the business he killed the business these guys have killed what they were part of they are killing the business that they were part of and 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 they may say you know if they hear this interview and I hope they do and um but yar you, you you are biting the hand that fed you—you you knew what you were doing. Don't give anybody any crap that you didn't know what you were doing because you did. And now either you need the money or you're 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 hurt. You can't do this. You can't. You say you can't lead a normal life. You, you, you've had concussions. Okay, great. I understand that it is a rough business, but don't blame anybody else. You chose to be in it.
0: Mm-hmm. And another one that we've, we, we've seen come down the wire, too, uh, and I don't know if you have saw it, too, another one, another case that has gone against the WWE was uh, the family of Matt Bourne. Now, Matt Bourne uh, worked uh, for the Fed off and on, what, in the early 80s around the WrestleMania era, then came back for a cup of coffee as Doink there for a year or so. But now to see that he is, their family's joining in on a career that was spent him doing God knows what inside and outside of the ring. I mean, this guy worked with Buzz Sawyer, if that doesn't tell you enough. Right. You know, this guy did a lot of stuff. You know, and he he wasn't somebody who would just go in with a simple, basic headlock, hip hip toss thing. He did a lot of spots that were damaging, even before he got to the Fed. This case, I really don't. I mean, it's unfortunate he left too early. He leaves a family behind, but I don't really know if this one's going to hold a lot of water considering the short period of time he was with uh, with Vince and the company. Right, and you
1: know, my thinking is. These guys are going to do their, there's going to be the testimony, all right? And and the judge is going to hear it. Uh, If it's going to be a jury trial, um, they're going to hear this. And if I'm not mistaken, the attorney that uh, Vince has, uh, he won a really big case. I forgot the guy's name. He's out of Philadelphia, I think. These guys are going to be grilled, and screw, and they're going to be skewed, shish kebobbed, and everything else, and I really believe they're going to lose mm-hmm. because you know, like I said, you know full well what you're getting yourself into. You know full well of what could happen to you regarding injuries, regarding taking drugs, taking steroids. Mixing alcohol with sleeping pills, mixing alcohol with steroids uh you know illegal recreational drugs, you know what the ramifications could be, mm-hmm. and so you know i just i it, it that's the thing glenn that picks me off is like you said the the of these guys like, Oh, nobody told me this was going to happen. Um, well, God, I, I wish I would have known that. I mean, you know,
0: well, yeah, if he didn't, if he yeah, if he, well, go sell carpet then, if you were going to know, I mean, this was something, come on, the naivete just really gets me. Just, I'm sorry.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and the thing is too, is like, <clears throat> remember when Vince had the thing with, with, uh, stone cold Steve Austin, when he had that big thing, and the next thing you know, you know, Vince used to be, you know, kind of skinny and everything. And the next thing you know, he's out there, oiled up, buffed up, and everything like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: you know, you're fifty years old, Vince, or whatever you were back at the time. Um, I'm sorry, but you know, you're not going to get that big without something. I was benching when I was forty years old. I was benching over three hundred. I never and i'll and I'll swear this to a jury to God, to whatever i never I never juiced in my life now, a lot of these guys say, well that three hundred that isn't anything. Well, you know what when you're forty, it's not bad, but you know what? I guess if I was all juiced up, I could probably be doing four hundred, but you know what then it's
0: not me really doing it. We're talking with Chris Curtis, former professional wrestler and uh, author of the book Job Man, My 25 Years in Pro Wrestling. And Chris, before we go today, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to mention a guy that you had the chance to work for, a guy you really cut your teeth in as far as major exposure, working uh, televisions uh, for him through the years, a guy that we lost, a guy that uh, cast a big shadow of a professional wrestling scene not only in uh, Minnesota but also in the Midwest and all over the country he is remembered and respected was Mr. Vern Ganya. And I just want to get the floor out to you on this to uh talk a little bit about Vern, you know, as much as you can and what your thoughts of Vern was uh, working for him and uh, some of the stuff you did with him and and just uh, as a boss and you know your memories of Vern here as much as we can cram in here in the next couple of minutes. I don't want to keep you too long.
1: Oh, no, that's fine. You can give me as long as you want. <laughs> um, Vern, I started watching um, All-Star Wrestling in 1966, and I was hooked. Uh-huh. And when I got the chance to first um, wrestle on there, uh, it was March of 79. Uh, it was Tom Stone and I against uh, uh, against Greg and Jim Brunzel. Um, I... I had the privilege of wrestling, in my estimation, in the greatest wrestling organization ever. Mm. Um, if if Vern didn't like you, he'd get rid of you. And if he really didn't like you, he'd have you stretched, and then he'd get rid of you. Um, he was... when when you, when you met the man, it was like... I remember the first time meeting him. It was like, oh my god! It's almost like meeting the president of the United States. He was he he was soft spoken, um, but he had a temper, and I've seen him ticked off. But we lost. I think, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest uh, champions ever. Um, You know, he he brought legitimacy. To the business, um, he was. He he came up with some great angles. He booked some of the greatest guys. He trained some of the greatest names. Oh, ever. That, that
0: that's a Hall of Fame in and of itself. They could have the whole Vern Gagne wing if they ever did.
1: Well, right, and and you know, but he. <clears throat> I remember one time, um, I was uh, uh, I was wrestling in Milwaukee. And this was back in uh, December of uh, '79, and I had a wrestler this guy. His name was uh, Peter Zabo. He, came, he was working, I think, for Bob Geigel, and he came in, and, and uh, Greg says, "You're working. You're working Zabo tonight." And but he doesn't speak English, and the, and the guy's looking at me with this kind of like half-heated grin on his face, and I'm thinking, "Oh my God, no!" <laughs>
0: what did I get myself into?
1: The match was a disaster, and Greg was watching it. Uh-oh. I thought, oh, no, I'm dead. So I go back to the dressing room, and Greg basically said, uh, and I can't say it on the radio, but he basically said, are you trying to kill this business? And Greg could actually be more vocal than Vern, and he he, he just lit into me. And so the next day, I flew up, and and, and I have to say I think one thing about the office. They were one of the few territories that used to fly job guys up. And, and back in 79 and eighty, eighty one, 81, they were flying us up. It was great. I mean, what other territory would fly jobbers up to do TV? And
0: you guys, were you, were you based out of Milwaukee at that time or where were you based?
1: Yes. Uh, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, so I go up there and I'm, I'm a nervous wreck. I'm thinking, okay, um, they're going to give me either mad dog, Vishon or they're going to give me Jerry Blackwell, or they're going to give me Billy Robinson. We're all three. I'm going to get stretched, and then they're going to, they're going to kick me out. So I go up and I go to the dressing room, and uh, Greg is standing there with Vern, and Vern goes, he, 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 he takes his finger, and he, goes, he singles the marijuana, and he goes, Hey, Curtis, what the hell is wrong with you? Are, are you trying to kill this business? And I told him what happened. And he just he just kind of looked at me, and uh you know I did my my TV, I think I had with Dino Bravo that day and uh shortly after I, I you know I went down to uh to work for Watts, but uh that was the only time I ever had a problem every every other time that you know over the ten years um he was he was great. I just wish that I was, I would have got the opportunity to wrestle him on TV because I would have loved just to do a legit wrestling match without using, you know, cheap heat or anything like that, you know, mm-hmm. using, you know, moves and amateur moves and, and wrestling moves and some high spots. It would, it would have been, oh, my God, it would have been, you know, <laughs> the icing on the cake to wrestle a guy like Vern. But, um, you know, I know a lot of guys, they 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 had a problem with Vern, but um you know he paid it was a great pain territory they, they you know they can't complain about that he fooled a lot of the guys and and it was um um it it, it was great it was it was memories i'll never forget
0: you know, it's it, it it reminds me of that story. Uh, hearing, uh, pardon me, about uh, Nick Bakewinkle when uh, the NWA was having uh, they put had their eyes on him to uh, take over and possibly down the road be the NWA champion. But Nick seeing the dates that you know that a Harley would work, uh, that that a Jack Briscoe would work, and some of the guys who previously had the title, he looked at all those dates that uh, they had to work per year to make the same amount of money that he w- made with Vern. Had a comfortable position, had a nice set amount of dates to work that was nowhere near the halls that uh, Harley and Jack and some of the other guys had to make. It really kind of made his decision uh, an easy one to, to stick with Vern, and that was one of the, the things, the, the loyalty that a lot of those guys did show uh, Vern until things started to fall off and, and we we hit that MTV rock and roll era, which really kind of brought the end of the expansion period.
1: Yeah, and I was, you know, and, 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 and when you think about when you compare when Nick, had the strap as opposed to like Harley and Jack Briscoe and, and uh, you know, Terry Funk and and those guys. I mean, those guys were going, if let's say they were working, you know, six days a week, if they're doing 60 minute broadways three and four times a week, you know, Nick would maybe do a, what, maybe one or two broadways a month.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if he was working maybe, you know, three days a week and then maybe go to, you know, he might go to work for Paul Bosch you know, for a little bit, or you, or you go to Japan or something like that. But, I mean, really, the the guy had a great schedule. And, you know, Glenn, when you alluded to the, uh, you know, the changing of the way the business has changed with the rock and roll and with all the, the crazy stuff, it it really, it was a sad ending. You know, guys said that, you know, Vern didn't make the change um you know the the business was ahead of him and and he he couldn't he couldn't see it it's not that he couldn't see it he didn't want to see it and i can't blame him for it when you're when you are a legitimate wrestler and you brought and you protected the business so much with kay fabe and and uh you know with with all the without all the you know the music and the entrance and the pump and the circumstance and it was all wrestling and and good good feuds and angles and and um it, it just it, it you know I, I i hated to see it go and um you know that i i have to give Vern credit i'm probably one of the few guys <laughs> that uh is on Vern's side because i'm i'm 58 years old and um Hey, I, I was brought up in, in you know the old way, and and that's the way I am. And you know, there's nothing wrong with some change. There really isn't. But the way it started going, it was it was getting. They were kind of grasping for straws to try to keep up with the Joneses, and it and it just didn't work. And and so you know, enough was enough. So.
0: Mhm and, and you just you just couldn't fight the the juggernaut that Vince had become. I mean even the NWA, even Jim Crockett uh, succumbed after trying to fight neck and neck and, and and at times doing well in certain parts of the market, but I think with with Crockett was uh, their problem and it's been documented by various wrestlers on various podcasts, been written that Crockett's problem problem was that he wanted to do the same thing with expansion but he just didn't quite have what Vince had Vince, I, I mean the built-in system, the workhorse that he was, the people that he surrounded himself with, the television, the innovation to the television product of pro wrestling. It seemed like he had his fingers on what was what was really hot and what was truly to become hot. Just in the regards to the production alone, I mean the wrestlers too. I mean, look at it, it. Really opened up the floodgates to merchandising. It wasn't just uh, rags, pens, and uh, you know pins and uh, autographs, pictures. You know, Vince took it uh, beyond what many, uh, probably a lot of these old guys, shook their heads at but also had a tinge of envy envy as well. But, I mean, it was just a whole new reality that came with the World Wrestling Federation.
1: You know, and and to Glenn, and and you could probably want to think about this. Mm -hmm. When, you know, when you have, you know, Crockett, you got the Carolinas and Atlanta, and, and then you have Vern in the upper Midwest, and then you had Vince, and you had Eddie Graham in Florida, and then you had uh, Don Owens in Portland, and then you had, you know, Ed Farhat in, uh, you know, the Sheik in Detroit. Oh, yes. And, you know, if you took a group of guys from the NWA, from the Carolinas, and I remember when uh, when Atlanta, when they expanded, and they started going into, like, you know, the Northeast, kind of like doing their little invasion the thing is, what works in one territory isn't going to work in another. Mm-hmm. Because people are so accustomed to a certain a certain group of guys, like the AWA. I mean, you had the Crusher Forever. You had Dick the Bruiser. You had Nick Bockwinkle. You had Ray Stevens. You had, you know... The list goes on. Oh, Billy Wah- Robinson.
0: Wahoo was in there for a good off and on from uh, times where he was splitting Wah- between between AWA and Crockett.
1: Right, and and he, but he was popular. Earlier. Superstar Billy Graham, super popular as as a heel, and then when he teamed up with, with Dusty, you know, in '75, as a babyface team against you know Horst Hoffman and and uh, Baron von Raschke, and then when he went to the WWF, he was even bigger. And but then you take a guy like. Um, you know Pedro Morales, who came to the AWA. Pedro, big time in you know New York in that area. He comes here. He, he means nothing, um, you know. And and then you, you take a guy like Bruno Sammartino, the big time in in New York, the East, and so forth. Then Bruiser brings him in for some shots in Indiana, and Chicago. Well. He doesn't mean anything because Bruiser is the man in the team, just mm-hmm. like he is all the time. You know, his partner will take all the heat. To get, you know, the the heels will get take all the heat on on Bruiser's partner. I don't care if he brought in Andre the Giant; they're going to take the heat on him, and then Bruiser's going to come back and make the comeback. and And so, you know, it 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 just.
0: It was a different it was it was a different conditioning that went from territory to territory with the with the fans. you you know, you're making it re- real clear. I mean, look at the down in, the, in in the South, I mean, they had that Southern wrestling style, which was a tag that was given to the style of the NWA guys and went down to Florida and stuff. They had their own sort of thing. There was people having different pockets of the country doing their own thing, having their own heroes, and some of those guys being able to transcend just one territory to to really make uh, the big money. But again, you get the case of a Pedro who really I mean he was a wet fart here I'm sorry to say it just didn't work it was yeah. a combination of he he had you know back up back in the east I mean a built-in latino audience there was some crossover there it wasn't just a latino thing but those were the ones that really helped uh you know make him what he was I mean helped him to fill the arena when he did have his reign as a, as a champion that that was the mm-hmm. direction I mean look at new york city that is a melting pot and, and a very strong latino crowd so you bring him over here to uh you know, armpit Iowa, I mean, no one's going to care.
1: Right. And, and, and then you take the opposite end of the spectrum, where Dusty Rhodes can go anywhere in the world, and, and he's hotter than ever. He'll sell out the house. And, and uh, you know, he's a rarity. Um, so <clears throat> it just, um, it, it, it's just it, the old days were, were the best. And and um, you know what, what works, like I said, and, and you know you you echo that too, Glenn. What works in some doesn't work in another. Um, yes, some guys can make the transition in, into you know into other territories, and uh, I mean Blackjack Mulligan. Oh. Um, you know he, when he was when he started with Vern, and and uh, when he worked for Broser, he made the transition, and and then he worked for you know New York, and and but he. He was able to be over down in the Carolinas and Atlanta and New York and for you know in the Midwest and and down in Texas. So you know it's it's far and few between, but he was able to make you know the you know the transition too. So
0: well, yeah. I mean, you got a guy who started up uh, some of his early green years as a Bob Wyndham. Do you think uh, mm-hmm. one of the catalysts for his popularity too was getting hooked up with a guy like a Blackjack Lanza and learning from some of these guys of, of whom the territories he worked to really kind of build his gimmick up and go from Big Bob Wyndham to the Blackjack Mulligan having that persona?
1: Mhm. You know the funny thing now now here's here's another case scenario, Ray Stevens. Mhm. Ray Stevens was super hot in in uh, Northern California, he was super hot in the AWA. He was he was I think fairly hot when he went to New York. Then he went down and you know worked for Eddie Graham. He worked in Atlanta, and I think he kind of lost his identity a little bit when he went down down south because it just for whatever reason even though he was one of the greatest workers ever, um, the people just, uh, you know, he, I think he got over, but he didn't get over like he did up here. Mm-hmm. And he was he, he was so hot here when he teamed with Bachwinkle and, uh, um, and and then he was out west, um, you know, working for Roy Shire.
0: And hooking up but, with Patterson too, having another great tag team right uh-huh. there.
1: Yeah, even when he, and and the funny thing is, is like when he teamed up with Pat Patterson here, I don't think those two together drew the money that Bachwinkle and Stevens did as a team. I really believe those two drew more money as a heel team than ever in the AWA. It just, it was just, and then you throw Heenan in the mix. It just, it was just, it was, it was insane. Oh, and, it, um, it was
0: so rich in talent. I mean, even when, it, when they had that brief moment when, when they made Ray turn, what a moment on AWA TV, and thankfully we have the tapes to, to see that. I mean, what an angle that they built up with Ray being the guy being left out and finally Ray snapping and the fans, they, as much as they hated him, boy, the instant he hit Heenan, man. They were back. They were loving him. He had him in the palm of their hands. Didn't matter if he was a, a, a heel or a face. He had just had that magnetism, that talent, that gift.
1: Yeah, and, and 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 what they did with Larry Hennig too. When when Larry was the when he was the axe and, and he was a he was a heel and he, and then uh he came and saved you know, Greg and Jim against Bob Winkle and Stevens. This is all Vern coming up with with these angles. It, it has to be Vernon Wally or you know, I think a combination of everybody, but uh I mean it was it was ingenious what was done up here. And people just ate it up. It was just, it was, it was incredible. And, you know, it just, um, I remember, you know, refereeing, you know, and, and another guy is, is uh, you know, that just could do no wrong here, like the Crusher. I mean, I refereed matches um, in, in Milwaukee and Green Bay. And when I was done, it was always Crusher got beat, on a screw job because Heenan interfered and I was with Heenan and he was hit with the knuckles and I didn't see it. I had to be escorted to my car by either the police in Milwaukee or the sheriff's department in green Bay. So I could actually get out of town and, um, that's heat, make brother, it, make it out of the state. It, 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 that's heat. I had more heat than, than Bockwinkle, or, or Heenan that match. If they want to, if they, when I was in Green Bay, I'll never forget. I brought my younger brother up there, and it was a thing where uh, the finish was. Crusher was going to put the bolo on Nick. Heenan jumps up on the ring. He says he, you know, he's grabbing here. I went over by Heenan. Crusher let go. He came by us. Heenan took brass knuckles and threw them over our heads. Blackwell caught him, and the next thing you know, you know Heenan, you know he says okay, turn around. He, he nailed Crusher. Pressure went down, one, two, three. I barely made it back to the dressing room. <laughs> when we had a leave. there was like a little window in the back door of the Brown County Arena. People were out there. They looked like zombies. And they were screaming and pounding on the door. And I told the sheriff, I said, man, we're never going to get out of here. They want to kill me. And so we had to have like six sheriffs walk us out to the car. And and actually protect us. They had a squad escort us to the highway to get out onto the highway from Green Bay. I got that much heat. It was absolutely insane.
0: Just for a ref spot. I mean, that's just it tells you how much that you know that kayfabe era, man, and how much people were so drawn in, and they were. So wanting to, you know, they, they they were fully vested in these stories and stuff and the lines were blurred because you guys were living that. There was a kayfabe code there for a while, too. I mean, it just seemed like such a magic with that connection with the fans, even though, you know, that your story is not unlike some of the other boys who who were known to draw good heat. I mean, there was talks about people parking their cars miles away from the arena or maybe just getting an old beater to park so they cuz they knew there was a threat that there'll be somebody whether it was in, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee, or down in the deep south or up to the north of Milwaukee, there's going to be some fans and there's going to be some pissed off fans. Then that means when they're pissed off like that, they've bought in and you guys did your job.
1: I I when I worked in when I worked in Milwaukee, I parked 6 blocks away. I, I had to, mm-hmm. even though I was a jobber. They hated my guts. They did, and so I knew I was doing my job. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. I wrestled. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember a guy named Laurent Susti.
0: Not too familiar, but do do do, do let us know here. Tell us.
1: He was. Uh, Ver, he, he trained with Vern. He was. He was from Milwaukee. He was on the 76, I believe he was on the 76 Olympic team. He was an alternate. And, um, after he started in the business, he went down and he trained with Ole Anderson and, and then finally, and then he worked for, uh, for Vince and then he came back to work for Vern. So we had a match, um, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was horrible. He didn't get anything. The next week we worked at the amphitheater in Chicago. Well, before the match, I brought some friends and I brought a gal that I was seeing, my girlfriend there, and we they were like in the second or third row. And during the National Anthem, you know, Lorenz got his Olympic jacket on and he's got his gold medal. Oh, and during sure. the National Anthem, he's got his hand on his heart and he's singing. I stood there. I turned away from the flag. I was, you know, dressed in all my black and everything like that. And I put my head up, I stuck my head up, and there was a guy sitting next to my girlfriend. He started calling me every word in the book. He made her cry from the national anthem all the way through the end of the match until you know he beat me. And I found this out, and you know I told her. I said I had a consoler. I said Nancy. I said I- I'm really sorry. I, you know it. This this is or it's pretend. We're not trying to hurt each other. It's my job to get the audience ticked off. And I said, I'm really sorry. And she said, okay, but did you have to make it look so real? (laughs) So it's like, I had her fooled too. And I, and I, and I, you know, and I had to apologize to her up and down that I didn't smarten her up. But, you know, it's just, Chicago was nuts. I mean, you could sneeze, and you would get heat. It, it was just it was just the greatest thing that, you know, you could just be, I could just be me. I didn't have to do anything above and beyond my normal mannerisms, and I can get heat just like that. And I'm a jobber. I'm not even on top. Hey, you, you,
0: know? and, you and, and, you and, and Tom that, Stone, man, I just remember, I mean, there was just like, even though, I mean, you guys were doing the preliminary stuff, I could just see some devilishness in uh, both you and, oh, yeah. uh, and, and Tom Stone.
1: It was it was great. I mean he he had it marked down and, and he was such a great worker. He really was. He knew that business in and out. I mean he could he could be a booker. He was so good. And um you know, we like to come up with something and he'd go, Why don't you try this or or, or do this? You know, and he would suggest and, and um you know it just it was it, it was great and you know, I, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to work for a guy like Vern Gagne because that's what people remember me for, working for Vern. You know, they, they remember a little bit working, you know, for Vince and mm-hmm. and so forth. But, uh, you know, my my bread and butter was, was working for Vern, and, and, you know, a lot of the book that I did was, was dedicated toward, uh, you know, the AWA because it was... It was, it was par excellence as far as 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 an organization goes.
0: Mm-hmm. And we were talking with uh, Chris Curtis, author of Job Man, the book uh, he just mentioned, My 25 Years in Pro Wrestling. Chris, we've got a little bit of time left before the timekeeper's going to ring the bell. We're uh, nearing our 60-minute Broadway. When we were talking off mic, we were like... You know, we'll do a thirty minute, and you're like, "Yeah, I think that'd be okay." And you even brought up a Tom <laughs> Stone story for God's sake. I mean, it was like, oh, I, I had to try to remember us. We were talking, and going through so many memories. We, I had to remember that we talked about Tom Stone, and you talked about a match that you guys had. You guys did a little Broadway work too uh, together on, on an indie show of some kind, or was it a, a Vern show?
1: No, it was a. It was an indie show. There was there's was a little hall in Milwaukee, you know, mm-hmm. and and that's where a lot of guys they would get their starts and like, you know uh little outlaw shows and and uh little beer halls and stuff and it was a it was a it was a Sunday afternoon in the middle of summer. we had ten people in the audience and uh we had to set up the ring mm-hmm. and um you know there were like eight guys and we were in the main event and we did we did a thirty minute broadway I got paid five bucks, but I didn't care uh-huh. because back then it was the love for the business. You weren't doing it for the money. You didn't do it when, when 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 you're jobbing. You don't do it for the money. You do it because you love the business, and that's why the more experience you get, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's what it is. I know I'm not going to make 10 grand a week. I know I'm not. You know, you work every you know once a week or every couple of weeks or something like that. You might get a a stretcher. You might work two or three days a week. But I didn't do it for the money. I did it because I loved it, and that's the thing. You know, when 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 you're a kid and you're watching all these guys, and then you're in the ring with them, um, what could be better, Glenn? I mean, it was it was kind of like I was making it to Hollywood. And I was in seventh heaven. Um, that's why you do it. That's why you get in the professional wrestling. You have to love it first. Mm-hmm. And and going back to these guys that are filing this lawsuit, I hope to God they got in the business because they loved it first, not because well I'm going to make a you know 200 grand a year. Yeah, I guess that's all well and good. But I don't think they love the business enough to be biting the hand that's done them. I could come out there and say, oh, I was hurt. You know, I, I, I wish somebody would have told me this and would have told me that. I'm never going to do that. Never mm-hmm. going to do it because it's wrong. Yeah.
0: I want to th- thank you so much, uh, Chris Curtis, uh, for coming back. And, boy, the first time you were on was awesome. I think this one almost quite t- quite honestly. I think you topped yourself, my friend. Put yourself over once again because this was this was really fun. It was really nice. We got to go in into uh, some good good stuff, and I, I really felt like we had a good conversation. And I hope that uh, that's the feeling you get on this uh, on your end as well.
1: I did, and, and and I really I really really appreciate it, and it's an honor to be back uh, um, with you again, Glenn. I, I, I love listening to you and George when you when you guys are, are having the show. So I really do.
0: For Wrestling Memories Online, I'm Glenn Broggett.